Welcome back to the book of Esther. Today we are going to take a look at chapter 7, and in your worship liturgy that is sent out via email, there is the entirety of chapter 7. Keep it close to your fingers there as I'll reference a few verses along the way. We all want to make sense of life, and most of the time we might ask immediate questions to make sense of what is happening around us. Why did she look at me that way? Why did he say that to me? Why can't my team ever win a championship? Those type of questions. But there's also eternal questions that we ask at times. These questions and answers are at the heart of world religion. And it's also the impetus of scientific endeavors and the domain of philosophy as well. Those who believe in God typically think that fully adequate answers to the big questions or eternal questions of life must include God. There are three of these questions that lurk in the mind of most people, observant especially of the suffering that is in our world. These questions lie below the surface of our lives like an aching muscle that gives little relief. Why did God allow evil in the past? Number two, why doesn't God do something about evil in the present? And number three, will God eventually destroy evil in the future, the past, the present, and the future? These three questions lurk deep inside of us. These questions are all fine to ask, and they tend to move toward philosophical answers. And science and philosophy, humanity, arts, or other disciplines contribute to try to answer these questions. But everyday experiences matter as well. And it all comes back to the beginning. How does God fit in to this conundrum where we observe suffering at the hands of evil? Could God really have created a world without evil without destroying human free will as well? Does God really rule the world with such hands-on precision that he would prevent every consequence of human action or possibly inaction? Does God promise that evil will one day be eradicated so that we will be free from all the suffering that goes along with it? He does so, but he doesn't give us precise answers. He does so in word pictures. Before we get to Esther, I want you to think about Revelation chapter 21, the first four, view, first four verses. In Revelation chapter 21, John the Revelator says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And then when you skip down a couple of verses, it says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. But you'll notice there, there's no precision as to how this is going to happen. It just talks about a new heaven, a new earth, and no sea. And I think every time I see someone read that passage, one of the first things they notice is, no sea? No sea? Are you kidding me? For all of you nautical lovers out there, you are disappointed because you think there's going to be no swimming or boating or fishing, but that's not the point. 
The sea, of course, is a part of the original creation, as well as the dry land and the heavens, and God calls all of that good. But by chapter 6 of Genesis, we see the rising floodwaters as a threat to the entire world. The water in Genesis chapter 6 is emblematic of the violence that has covered the earth. And when we hear no more sea, it begins to take on another meaning. That there is not going to be this rising of continued violence and suffering that goes along with it. In Daniel chapter 7, we see some sea monsters coming up out of the sea that represent the nations that threaten the well-being of human beings. So with that as a backdrop, before we get to Esther chapter 7, the Bible does promise that there is going to be a new kind of order to the world. And that's what Revelation and Daniel and Genesis is envisioning for us. Well, it's in very subtle form here in Esther chapter 7 as well. The point is simply this, that the sea is often a metaphor for the evil that surrounds us, that comes crashing down on us, causing us heartache. And so the subject of God's plan for the human race is summed up in this statement, I am making all things new. Well, how does that work? In Esther chapter 7, what we're going to see here this morning is that God does so through bits and pieces. He does so through his providential work behind the scenes. I want to remind you that in the book of Esther, there is no mention of God whatsoever. But we see some of his fingerprints, and we see him moving behind the scenes. We've been using the chessboard as an illustration, and we have said that King Ahasuerus deposes Queen Vashti, and she is no more. And what we find then is that she is replaced by Queen Esther. And as Queen Esther comes to the throne, what we find is that her knight in shining armor, who is Mordecai, is looking over her situation and trying to take care of her. But there is this vile, evil man named Haman that suggests to the king that all the Jews are in violation of his commandments simply because Mordecai will not bow down to him as an elevated royal official. So that brings us here to chapter 7, where a decree has already been issued by the king that all Jews must be eradicated. The one thing that King Ahasuerus does not know is that Esther herself is a Jew, and she would fall under this extermination of this entire race. Well, God providentially is working in such a way that Mordecai, who sits outside the king's gate, one day hears about a plot to murder the king, and he saves King Ahasuerus' life. But nothing was ever done for Mordecai until we saw last week in chapter 6, where Mordecai is rewarded, and Haman must lead Mordecai around the city, proclaiming that this is what God, uh, the king does uh, for those who protect and honor him. And so that brings us to chapter 7. And what we find is that Haman 
is caught up in this whole flood of violence and hatred and wants to exterminate the Jewish people. So what is going to happen is that now in chapter 7, Esther is going to reveal that Haman is the one that is a threat to her people. Now it seems to me that the world keeps moving on and God sees it as great value and wants to protect it. But the way that God is going to deal with situations like this is incrementally and intermittently. Let me say that again. God will move to put the world to rights incrementally and intermittently. So God is moving toward the goal, but he doesn't always operate in the same fashion. One of the things that you'll notice in the scripture is God does not use the same method in every circumstance. God does not always act in the same way, even, in every age. And there are unique movements that he causes along the way, even though at times it appears as if evil is winning. So today, I want to talk about, out of chapter 7 with that long introduction, I want to talk about how God is going to thwart evil intermittently. So here we are in chapter 7, and what we find is that while all of us would love to snap our fingers and have God eradicate evil, he doesn't do it that way. He usually roots out evil one event at a time. So when it comes to evil, without God, we cannot eliminate it in this world. But without us, God will not eliminate it. So let me say that again. When it comes to evil, without God, we cannot eliminate it. And without us, God will not eliminate it. In other words, both are needed. The providential work of God is a partnership. And in Esther chapter 7, what we find is God is still working behind the scenes, but now Esther needs to step into the spotlight. And she needs to influence King Ahasuerus by exposing Haman's evil plot. So Esther must do her part. And I know earlier in the book that if she refused to step up and do it, Mordecai said that God would bring deliverance from another place. We don't know what that other place is. Maybe Mordecai thought that he would become the deliverer instead of her. Yet Esther is the one that is providentially placed to carry out this mission. And that brings us now to this chapter, and let's see how it unfolds. So in verses 1 through 4 of Esther chapter 7, it says this, So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And as they were drinking wine on that second day, so remember, there's already been one banquet with Haman and King Ahasuerus and Esther, and now she has requested a second one the next day. So it is the second day. The king asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered. So now she's going to step out of the shadows. If I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. 
For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had been merely sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Let's stop there for a moment. So we're keeping in mind at this point that Esther has been quiet. And now she steps out of the shadows and asks that the king spare not only her life, but the life of her people as well. Now, what I find curious at this point is when she says here in verse 4, if you were going to simply sell us as slaves, I wouldn't have opened my mouth. So one of the things we're going to talk about on Wednesday night Bible study is the morality of Esther. Why would she not open her mouth if they were going to be sold as slaves, but because their life is in jeopardy, now she's going to open her mouth. Now, Haman, I think, begins to realize at this point that this banquet is a setup to expose him. And Esther, in her humility, had held her tongue, but now she's opening her mouth and she is going to point him out as the one who initiated this decree to destroy the Jewish people. So that brings us down to the adversary in verses 5 and 6. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, The adversary and the enemy is this vile Haman. So now he is named. I really do think that King Ahasuerus did not know that the decree that would go throughout his whole kingdom was to destroy all the Jews. I believe personally that he thought that Haman was going to try to root out those who were revolutionaries that wanted to lead a rebellion. No, the decree was for all the Jewish people. And now King Ahasuerus is going to get mad. And in his anger... He is asking for the identity and location of the person who would dare lay a hand against his queen. And Queen Esther points out, there he is, our adversary and our enemy. It's interesting that there are two words used to describe Haman here. Upon hearing this, Haman is going to be afraid, and rightfully so, but it's interesting there is a distinction that he is given these two titles. Think about it for a moment. An enemy is one that is opposed to another group of people. Um, we have our enemies as a country, even though we never see them face to face. It's kind of in theory only, they are our enemies. But they become adversaries when they initiate some type of threat some type of attack, that type of thing. So Haman is already an enemy against the Jewish people, and one of the reasons for that is his nationality. Uh, he is from the tribe of Agag, and that'll be another Wednesday night a topic, is this is really setting up a, um, a battle, uh, if you will, between Jewish people and the Agites. Okay, that's for Wednesday night. But what we find is that he's also an adversary, and he's the one that's going to initiate a plot to destroy these uh, Jewish people. So Haman is both an adversary and an enemy. 
And there is another character in the scripture that could be described the same way. He is called the Hasatan, or we call him Satan. He is not only an enemy against the human race wanting to thwart the good order of God in the world, but he is also an adversary seeking whom he may devour, the scripture tells us. And so what we find is that Satan, or the Hasatan, it's not a name so much as it is a title, the accuser, the one who is the adversary, is going to use human hands to carry out his plot. And so Haman falls into that uh, characterization of one who is following in the footsteps of the Hasatan, not following in the footsteps of this unseen, mysterious good God that is working behind the scenes. So in verses 7 through 10, we find what happens to Haman. It tells us in verse 6 that Haman was terrified before the king and queen. And the king got up in rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. And so he is going to beg for his life. The king will come in at that very moment. And it says, the king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? So he takes it as Haman attacking Esther. As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face and then... Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king. So here's Harbona on our metaphor board here. And he is going to come and he is going to lead Haman away. He knows he's going to be executed. Notice what it says here. Then Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs attending the king said, A gallows 75 feet high stands by Haman's house. That was built for Mordecai. He had it made for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. And then the king said, dun, 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 hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the king's fury subsided. Now this is one of those great reversals, where God's providence is going to use people, in this case Esther, and also Harbona, to take Haman away to be executed on the gallows that he built to execute Mordecai. So irony is a part of this text as well. So as we look at this this morning, Haman, while he begs for his life, is going to be taken away and he is going to be executed. So now here comes the hard part. What do we do with this chapter? What do we make of this chapter, and what does it have to do with how God is going to thwart evil, even in our day and age? We might have the tendency to think that once Haman is out of the way, then the danger is past too. Not so. There is still the decree to deal with. That'll come in the next couple of chapters. There are those, obviously, that must have agreed with Haman, and they, because they have a decree in hand, will continue to seek to carry out that genocide. And we might say that they were Hamanized. 
In other words, they just are going to follow in lockstep to try to destroy the Jewish people. Well, what we find is that the intermittent phases of how God is going to thwart evil is illustrated over longer periods of time. So there's going to be this, um, this battle of hatred between the Agites and the Jewish people. There's going to be this battle between Haman and Esther. There's going to be this battle of this decree versus the Jewish people who must defend themselves. Well, that has been true down through the history, especially of the Jewish people. Evil is not defeated all at once. It's defeated one episode at a time. And often their victory is short-lived, and the next encounter will require them to fight all over again and to trust the God who will reveal himself in these moments. You see, evil as we know it, as we often see it, is not defeated all at once. It's defeated incrementally. It's defeated intermittently. And I was thinking about the fact that February is Black History Month. And Brenda Carr uh, in our congregation put me on to a special by PBS about the history of the black church in America. And so I was watching that the other day, and I was thinking about how even the history of black people in our own country had to fight intermittently over the course of the years and decades to gain further rights and protections and so forth. You'll see on my uh, little uh, folder here that, uh, that we have the LGBT uh, rainbow, another group of people that have had to fight for their rights for many years and have made gains intermittently over the years. But let's come back to our brothers and sisters, um, African-American brothers and sisters. Think about how over the course of the years they had to be able to be freed from slavery and we had a civil war uh, as part of that history. Then they had to fight for rights and they had to overcome Jim Crow laws. Uh, and more recently, they continue to have to fight uh, against discrimination against them because of white supremacy within our own country. You see, the battle continues even in certain areas of our country where there are black and Latino voters who, uh, because of those who are in power, try to suppress their vote and not allow them to have their right to have a say in the political process. You see, the battle goes on. And as it goes on, it is not just a physical battle, not just an emotional battle, it is a spiritual battle as well. I think that's what Esther 7 is trying to tell us here. It's a spiritual battle that has intermittent joys and sorrows, victories and defeats. When we come to trust Jesus as our Savior, Lord, and Teacher, it does not guarantee that nothing bad will ever happen in this life. It certainly does. You see, evil, that great destroyer of the world we live in, is always present. 
And it always takes individuals to step up and put up the good fight. We do so nonviolently, but we do so understanding that we're trying to push back the darkness with the light. You know, many believe God is present with those who suffer, and I do too. You see, we find in the season of Lent that God experienced pain and death in the crucifixion of Jesus, and he becomes a fellow sufferer along with us. But on that cross, he pushes back the darkness, and he says, I am the light of the world. But there is a sense of randomness at times in life. Sometimes what we find as we ponder God's providence is the most elusive of answers as to why God doesn't do something immediately. Why does God choose to use people rather than his own power? Why is it that it's not done in an instant, but it is done over a course of time? I don't think any of us can fully understand that. But maybe part of the answer is that God's eternal nature is uncontrolling love. You see, because of love, he provides freedom. He provides agency to creatures. And God works by empowering them, inspiring them to work toward well-being. Now, God certainly does act miraculously at various times. We find that during the days of Moses. We find that during the days of Jesus. But he doesn't do that all the time. And what we find is sometimes God gives us the freedom to be able to act on behalf of other people that need our intervention. So we join God intermittently to right a wrong, to seek justice, and to heal injustice. And if we do not join him, there is the possibility that help will come from someplace else. Or perhaps, perhaps certain circumstances will happen that cannot be reversed. So we all have to have a sensitive heart in our own providential place in the will of God. Has God called me? Has God called you? to be a part of his plan to free people rather than bind them, to empower people to live freely rather than put a death sentence upon their shoulders. You see, because God gives freedom, sometimes God will not override that freedom, but will call people to step in to the moment. And what we find here this morning is Esther has inspired many people throughout history to step into the perilous arenas to use their influence to make a difference. These victories will not always come at once, but we do know by that promise that I began this message with is that eventually God will put all the pieces together. You see, there are too many pieces to the puzzle in this problem of evil in our world. There's too many people and things to arrange to have it done all at once. And so God takes his time, and like here on the chessboard, checkmate is not an immediate move. It takes some moves, and it takes some counter moves to make that happen. We always remember that there's a Haman in the hallway, but there's also an Esther on the throne. And what we find is, in the meantime, where we find ourselves at this 
moment in history is that sometimes things will get worse before they get better. And sometimes God will even let us hit rock bottom so that we can discover that he is the rock at the bottom. And that we might be able to stand and that we might be able to rise. Perhaps you're an Esther in this moment in your family's life, in the life of your neighborhood, in the life of your job, your employer. Maybe something far more profound, maybe a specific area. I began this message this morning reminding you that this symbol that's on this little holder that I have in front of me is what we are called to as Shade Tree Community Church. We are stepping into this moment to make sure that we're an open, affirming, all-inclusive group of people that love having you here regardless of your sexual orientation, regardless of the color of your skin, regardless of your age, regardless of your education level. We belong to each other, not only as part of the human race, but for those of us who know Christ as our personal Savior, we are a part of his family, and we are brothers and sisters. And if we will watch for each other, and if we will take care of each other, and if we will serve each other, and if we will intervene on behalf of each other when that is needed, we keep hope alive. I'm going to have Corey come up at this time. And he is going to read that closing section uh, at the end of the liturgy there about hope nonetheless.